0: what we've learned is what we know is not nearly as important um, to keep secret as how we know it so we still have secrets right how we understand some of the Chinese plans and intention how we understand where they've had success and where they've been frustrated but the what they're doing and how we can cause friction in their operations that's something we've got to share and we've got to have trusted partners
1: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the top cyber trends going into 2024, and much more from two of the NSA's top cyber experts. It's Thursday, February 15th, 2024. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. First on FedScoop, a new bipartisan Senate bill seeks to improve the U.S. pipeline for jobs in artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies through the development of a workforce framework from NIST. The AI and Critical Technology Workforce Framework Act, introduced by Senators Gary Peters and Eric Schmidt, would direct NIST to create a workforce framework for AI and assess whether other critical or emerging technology areas might also benefit from frameworks. The bill is intended to build upon NIST's existing National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, also known as NICE, framework, which outlines cybersecurity roles in an effort to help employers build their cyber workforces, as AI is poised to reshuffle the workforce. In other news, the Government Accountability Office has been breached, resulting in the compromise of data associated with thousands of current and former employees of the agency. The breach occurred via one of GAO's contractors, CGI Federal, who notified GAO on January 17th of a data breach impacting approximately 6,600 people, primarily current and former GAO employees from 2007 to 2017, as well as some companies doing business with GAO, an agency spokesperson said. CGI, in turn, said it fell victim to a breach of a third-party tool, the Atlassian Confluence Workforce Collaboration Tool. The breach occurred after CISA and the FBI, among others, issued an advisory in October detailing the active exploitation of a vulnerability affecting certain versions of Atlassian Confluence data center and server. Malicious hackers exploited the vulnerability to obtain access to victim systems and continue active exploitation post-patch, the advisory warned. Researchers quickly warned of mass exploitation of the vulnerability. You can read more about these stories and much more at fedscoop.com. With 2024 fully in swing, cybersecurity remains a top priority in the federal technology space and beyond. In a special interview, the NSA's Rob Joyce and Morgan Ademsky sit down with CyberScoop's Elias Grohl to examine the major cybersecurity trends from last year that will continue on in 2024, the evolution of Russian hacking operations, how China is targeting U.S. critical infrastructure, how AI is changing the business of cybersecurity, and much more. Let's go to that discussion now. I'm
2: joined today by Rob Joyce and Morgan Adamski, who, between the two of them, uh, work to protect some of America's most sensitive networks. Rob Joyce is the Director of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency. Morgan Adamski is the Chief of NSA's Cybersecurity Collaboration Center. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you this morning. Likewise. Morgan, thanks for joining us.
3: Yeah, really excited to be here. Thanks for having us.
2: So we're doing this interview on December 21st. Uh, This week, the NSA released its cybersecurity year in review report. And one of the things that really struck me in that report was the attention to Chinese cyber operations. So I'm wondering if maybe we could kick things off by just looking back at 2023 and describing what you saw in terms of Chinese cyber operations.
0: This year, the difference is we saw China pre-positioning on U.S. critical infrastructure. So that's different than espionage, that's different than stealing intellectual property for commercial gain. They are there to be able to disrupt our ability to go and support conflicts. Um, the, The idea that they're there in our infrastructure is something significant that we have to push back against.
2: Morgan, you've been talking a lot about this issue of Chinese operations and critical infrastructure. And I'm wondering, you know, you've been trying to raise awareness, trying to get folks to pay attention to this issue. How's that going?
3: It's going really well. I think there's a lot of people that recognize the significance that the U.S. cybersecurity community can have in just providing insights and expertise on how do we find this threat, how do we get them out of these networks, and how do we keep them out of these networks. And so I think there's a lot of people that are stepping up to make a difference, and we really appreciate it. It's definitely been a game changer for us as we try to understand the comprehensive China threat.
2: I'm wondering, Rob, if you might elaborate a little bit on what China is trying to achieve with its operations against U.S. infrastructure. And when we're talking about U.S. infrastructure that's being targeted, I mean, specifically, what are we talking about?
0: We're talking about things like electricity, ports, airports. It's the the base capabilities of the U.S. And what they're trying to achieve is to stop us from being able to deploy in the event of a a crisis. They're also looking to turn us inward at times of crisis so that we're not focused on whatever the issue is in the Asia-Pacific region. So their intent is basically to keep us from entering that fight.
2: Mm. When you look at what's happening in in Ukraine, for example, with with Russian cyber operations against critical infrastructure there. How would you compare and contrast how China thinks about its operations against critical infrastructure versus you know how the Russians are approaching it in Ukraine?
0: Well, I think China is looking at the operations in Ukraine and understanding that they have to plan and prepare. Mm russia clearly wasn't well prepared going into ukraine to be able to support the invasion with cyber operations they quickly threw together some effects there was the viasat hack there was a lot of effort with wiper viruses against businesses in um, in and around ukraine but it wasn't significant and massive Um, we just had the kiev star hack so that's what two years in they get to a massive infrastructure attack I think China is looking at that and saying they, they need to plan, preposition, and be ready in advance.
2: Mm. When the NSA is exposing some of these operations that are being done by nation-state actors, it, it seems like we've, we're seeing more of these types of exposures happening. Is that a shift? Is that something you're trying to do more of and be more proactive
0: about? Yeah, it, it's very purposeful. Um, Why? The internet's owned and operated by commercial industry. Mm -hmm. So we have to have them aware of what we're seeing with our intelligence capability, because they need to invest their resources, their expertise, and put their energy into both um, locking out these kind of intrusions and pushing out the ones that are there.
2: Mm. What was what's driving that shift? Or, or when did you make the decision that, you know what, we're, we're going to change gears and and start exposing a lot of these operations? I mean, for, you know, if you look back at the NSA's history, it's been immensely secretive. You're starting to be more public. You're sitting with us doing an interview, right? This wouldn't have happened 15, 20 years ago. Um, but in terms of the decision to burn more foreign nation
0: state operations. What drove that shift? What was the turning point with that? Well, we established the Cybersecurity Directorate here at NSA a little over four years ago with the intent of forming these kinds of relationships with industry, working more with with partners, whether it's CISA, FBI, um, our Five Eyes partners, and many other like-minded nations around the world. We looked and said, what is our capacity and capability? Our special superpower here at NSA is the foreign intelligence mission. So we can reach into those foreign actors and understand intent, capability, and operations. And at the same time, industry has this tremendous view of what's normal and abnormal on their platform, and they have this base of expertise that's unmatched. So marrying us together in those activities um, is really powerful. And by bringing us together, we we have to work in this open, unclassified world. We have to bring our intelligence to that space, because the people we need to partner with, the people who can do something, don't have those clearances.
2: Mm-hmm. Was it, for example, I just want to press on that point a little bit. Was it, for example, you know, Russian operations around the 2016 election that made NSA realize it kind of needs to be a little bit more forward leaning? Was that a turning point, or was there some other incident that um, kind of pushed you in this direction? Yeah.
0: So there wasn't one incident, but it was um, the sophistication of some of the Russian malign influence, election security and other things. It was the pervasive widespread intrusions by China. It was um, Iran, but it also was the rise of these, um, these criminal hacktivists who have broad reach, big impact. Um, but are out of reach of normal, traditional law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And so we needed to be um, involved with new partners in new ways. And I think you also see um, our interagency peers operating in new and different ways, right? CISA has stepped up in tremendous ways FBI is doing some incredibly innovative operations that are not just trying to arrest people, but really get to disruption of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So we've all started to pivot and work differently, but more collaboratively across both government and industry.
2: So in this world that we're living in, the highly secretive, no such agency approach doesn't really fly anymore.
0: It doesn't fly, but it's... It's necessary. What we've learned is what we know is not nearly as important um, to keep secret as how we know it. So we still have secrets, right? How we understand some of the Chinese plans and intention, how we understand where they've had success and where they've been frustrated. But the what they're doing and how we can cause friction in their operations, that's something we've got to share and we've got to have trusted partners. How do you
2: decide? when to burn a foreign nation state operation. I can imagine, you know, if you're sitting in an intelligence agency, you're watching a Chinese operation happen. You know, you're learning a lot about what they're doing just by watching and not burning them, right? Like, what kinds of questions are they interested in? But at a certain point, you you arrive at the decision that, you know what, the right thing to do is to expose this and burn it. How do you arrive at that point? What are the factors driving that decision for you?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of things that go into those kind of decisions. You you mentioned several of them. Um, But one thing we're always thinking about is how do we alter the decision-making process of the people who are in charge? And when you go to any cyber operation, there's somebody that has decided they're going to do it, whether it's an individual criminal acting on their own who believes that the profit outweighs the risk and the threat, or whether it's a government institution who believes that they can do this without international repercussions, without um, shame and, and disreputation to their country, um, and, and so we're trying to alter that calculus, because in the end, you can take away tools, you can disrupt their infrastructure, um, but they're going to rebuild those things. Mm. If you impact the decision makers who say, this really isn't a winning strategy that's causing us more pain than, than the potential operational good, mm. um, you start to slow down and disrupt and have deterrence effects. I think if you look at um, the Ukraine invasion, for example we were very public as a US government about the eve of the the invasion and the need to protect US critical infrastructure and businesses. Um, That public messaging, combined with the capabilities and operations we do consistently to push back, um, those things aggregated to the point we had deterrence. And the operations in and around Ukraine stayed in that theater. They didn't come to the US. They stayed on the combatants. Um, there was some intelligence gathering um, against companies that would look to supply lethal aid into the region, um, the transportation of weapons and goods that NATO and our allies were, were supplying. But those were traditional intelligence operations. Those weren't disruption. Mm. So the idea that you know we talk about this stuff, we push back, we give the decision makers the chance to kind of internalize what we're doing. Um, that's a deliberate act and intended to do, um, to, do to implement deterrence. If
3: hmm. I can just add something, you know, it's not just necessarily about burning an access or burning an operation. Um, it also is just about raising awareness amongst the cybersecurity community. So when we talk about PRC cyber threat against critical infrastructure, we want the cyber defenders to be aware of the threat we want to talk about how to defend against it. The same thing came about with Russia-Ukraine, right, when the government released the cybersecurity advisory on how to protect satellite communication systems, right, after the Viasat attack. And so it's not just necessarily about, it's obviously equally important to influence the decision makers, but we also want to make sure that the defenders can be prepared to protect their networks against that threat before it actually happens. Hmm.
2: we're in the end of the year for the cybersecurity industry which means i'm getting bombarded by emails about kind of uh the year that was and one of the things that you know folks are spending a lot of time pointing out to me is that um log4j continued to be the most exploited vulnerability in 2023 now more than a year after it was exposed um how how frustrating is it for you to see that
3: Um, extremely frustrating, right? We spend a lot of time, large government campaigns to talk about these type of vulnerabilities, how to patch, to pay attention to it. But quite honestly, we had a lot of back-to-back, right? We had Hafnium, we had Log4j, we had Russia-Ukraine, and so cyber defenders at a certain point likely got very fatigued, yep. but it's extremely frustrating because our adversaries, similar to what we talk about with the China threat, right, are using these commonly exploited vulnerabilities to get into access to networks, and there's mm-hmm. people are just not patching them. And so yep. they're making it really easy uh, for people to walk through the front door and you know, if we're putting that much attention and highlighting those type of vulnerabilities, we need people to prioritize really patching them and focus on mitigations.
2: Yeah, is there any kind of change in, in the policy landscape that you'd like to see when it comes to patching issues and trying to deal with that?
0: Well, I think you know the the National Cyber Director, the White House, um, have all been pushing the idea that um, we do need to have some amount of regulation in the space. Yeah. Um, I think people understand what they need to do, um, but when it comes to a profit loss business, the motivations aren't always there to invest everything they need to do in cybersecurity. So at that point, you've got to get the minimum standards into regulation. And if you look at the past 12 months, um, there's been a shift to try to set up some of those minimum requirements. And I think that's, um, that's a cost to just doing business now is we have to invest in cybersecurity. How
2: would you say the big players in the technology ecosystem are doing in in terms of their security maturity? You know, for example, there were a lot of folks on, on the Hill this year that were heavily criticizing Microsoft for some of the business decisions around their security products, where clients had to pay extra for logging capabilities, to catch a a high-profile Chinese hacking campaign. Um, And, you know, the other criticisms around design decisions that enable that. How do you think the the big players in the technology ecosystem are doing in terms of their security posture? Yeah,
0: so they get it. And I would put 2023 is a turning point. You mentioned you know, Microsoft in, in, enabled logging um, for a lot of customers, so it is not an add-on feature. It is by default part of your service. We've got to get to the point where security is not a premium service. Security is a base service. And, and if you look at the bigs in the ecosystem, they do an incredible amount to um, secure all of us, whether it's the... Um, individual users at home, the small businesses, the mediums, and the large, but they're the ones with the resources that can make ecosystem-wide improvements um, on security. And, and I look at what they're delivering, and it's really impressive for the capabilities they're rolling out. Are they perfect? Not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, all of us across the government are on board with the secure by design movement and looking to advance that so that. Um, the, the ecosystem has the default security built in um, from the beginning.
2: But gener- Did you want to add to that? no, uh, But generally speaking, you're kind of you're happy with the products
0: you're buying. We're going in the right direction. Right? <laughs> Everything's not perfect. and if it was perfect, we wouldn't have the issues we're seeing. Um, but it's, it's trending better. And the idea that we can get um, some of these companies with massive security teams, um, who have you know tremendous expertise, and bring the most sophisticated, newest detection technologies. That makes us all more secure.
2: Mm. Wanted to return to the the Chinese operation against Microsoft, which I think was a, a pretty astounding one in many ways. It was carried out by stealing a signing key that was obtained after a signing key was inadvertently included in a crash dump that made its way from a, a protected system to a less protected system. And then an, a compromised engineer's account was used to steal that signing key. And you know, when that the results of that investigation were revealed, that a lot, I think a lot of folks in cybersecurity world thought, wow, <laughs> this this is not how I thought this would have happened, right? Um, and I think it speaks to um, interesting developments in, in how the Chinese are carrying out their operations. And I'm wondering if um, you might be interested in, in reflecting on what you think the lessons learned in terms of Chinese operations were from that incident.
0: So I have to be a little careful here because I'm on the Cyber Safety Review Board. And we're in the midst of evaluating that um, particular intrusion, Mm. working with um, Microsoft and and others in the ecosystem about the particulars. So I can't talk a lot about it. I can talk in general. Um, I think the things I took away from that and other operations are, if you're a major provider these days... um, that's where the data is, and that's where the adversaries are going to go to try to get their advantage. Yeah. So they are going to bring sophisticated nation-state technology to exploit you, and and so you've got to continuously be evolving both your detection tradecraft, as well as um, you know your attention to those securing those networks.
2: Okay, I thought we might turn to Russia briefly. Um, I'm curious two years into the war more or less how do you see russia's use of cyber operations in that conflict evolving
0: um i I talked about the arc a little bit right at the beginning they were unprepared it was really clear that um, russia was not ready to do combined arms across cyber and physical Um, as time went on They advanced from individual operations of wiper viruses and unique pressure um, on individual small elements to now a much more sophisticated effort that is a lot more Intel-centric. Most of the operations, Keevstar as the outlier, most of the operations are going against Intel targets. They're trying to get information on what the military is doing, where their operations are going, they're trying to understand um, movements of of material and troops. They're trying to understand negotiating positions. Um, so um, a, a lot of this has transitioned into um, what you would expect in a um, intelligence-driven campaign, mm. but. Um, Kiev Star will remind us that, they are- and Kiev
2: Star was the attack on Ukrainian telecom system that occurred yes. in the past week. Yeah.
0: Yes. So that will remind us that there's still a focus on critical infrastructure, and when they get a chance, they will go after it. Mm-hmm. So I would expect, you know, they will hope to do energy disruptions throughout this winter, right? So we'll look for that. Um, they will continue to come after communications, command and control. But I think the biggest threat to the Ukrainians right now in the conflict is being able to keep their information secure to prosecute the war. Hmm.
2: One of the things your annual report spends a lot of time looking at is um, securing the defense industrial base. Um, and for listeners who might not be familiar, that's the huge number of defense contractors that serve the U.S. government. I'm wondering if, um, Morgan, you might speak a bit to the security maturity within the defense contractors. How are they doing?
3: So when you talk about the defense industrial base, you're talking anywhere between 200 and 300,000 companies. The number Mm. constantly changes depending on how many active contracts the Pentagon has. Um, The big dib companies, the primes as we call them, there's only about eight to 10 of them.
2: This is Um, Lockheed Martin, um, Boeing. They make
3: up 80% of acquisition spending for the department. So big, their threat teams are amazing, right? From a cybersecurity perspective, they're extremely talented, they're robust. The Dib is targeted every single day. Um, it's It's been talked about for years how advanced persistent threats go after the Dib. So they are prepared in countering it. The real problem is the small to medium-sized businesses, um, the companies that don't have those cyber protection teams, that don't understand the threats. They can't. You know They can't ingest indicators of compromise and do anything with them to protect their networks. And so a lot of the work that we do at the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center that's highlighted in the report is actually how do we secure those small to medium-sized businesses through offering free cybersecurity services. And 90% of our companies currently enrolled in those services are small to medium-sized businesses. So it's really about supply chain illumination. Who are the critical small companies that are building and supporting these big weapons platforms? Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a very um, big difference between the primes and the smalls. And so we've got to really pay attention to some of those small companies to help them help themselves really.
2: And the smaller companies they're selling into the larger defense industrial based ecosystem, right? Yeah.
3: They're the subcontractors, right? They're building yeah. the small components. They're providing that one piece of hardware on a sub that nobody else can make, yeah. but it's critical to its it success. I mean, they are important because they make the entire ecosystem come together. Mm. But unfortunately, don't they don't have the resources. They don't have the people. I mean, we all know there's a shortage in cybersecurity talent, yeah. right? And they're not they don't have the funds necessarily to hire that talent to protect their networks. And so they pay a, a significant Significant role
2: hmm. for as long as I've been covering cybersecurity I've been hearing complaints from private industry that the US government isn't doing enough to share information about what's happening in cyberspace it seems you know as I think this conversation is illustrated right the US government is trying to share more information but I'm curious Morgan if you think you're happy with where you're at mm-hmm. in terms of information sharing
3: Well, you may not know me that well, but I'm never happy with where we're at. I always want us to do more. Um, I think, you know, when I reflect back um, on three years ago when we opened the center, it was December 2020 during SolarWinds. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Um, And we said, "Okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to share information? How are we going to build partnerships? Um, We had about 10 partners at the time. I think we're up to over 850 in the last three years. And those are partners who have willingly stepped in and want to be cooperative with us in our information sharing. I think we're still figuring out um, what type of information we need to share, who can use it, what's going to be more beneficial, and what does everybody care about from a prioritization perspective. And so um, our big two efforts in this upcoming year really focus on continuing to build those robust relationships with the biggest and best companies in the world, and then separately scaling those cybersecurity services to protect the small to medium-sized companies.
2: What does NSA information sharing look like on a day-to-day basis?
3: It it doesn't have some massive production behind it. It is as simple as NSA operating in an unclassified environment, which is very unique. Um, And we exist in an unclassified environment. We take sanitized information that we take out of our insights. We move it into that unclassified environment and we share it directly with the net defenders at these companies. It, It is in real time. So if you think about it, we used to share information and it would take weeks, months to get to people and it was already outdated. We are now sharing information within minutes that we're producing it in a classified environment. That's is, pretty insane.
2: Is there a Slack?
3: Yes, there's Slack and all types of things. It really depends okay. on whatever platform the companies want to use. As you can okay. imagine, there are some corporate policies on certain companies not using certain platforms, so we kind of oh, have okay. to be agile. Mm-hmm. Um, we also did not create some bespoke NSA capability uh, that would do this because that's not comfortable to our private sector. So we really are. it's really about meeting them where they're at so that we can make it as easy as possible and make them as comfortable as possible.
2: Okay. I want to talk a bit about the AI Security Center, a new initiative at the NSA launched this year. Um, It's focused on, and here I quote from your year in review report, the secure development, integration, and adoption of AI capabilities within national security system. The second component, quote, how adversaries use and target AI. And I want to focus on that last bit. How do you see US adversaries targeting AI systems?
0: So the way we approach this is the way we approach a lot of cybersecurity. We start with our Intel understanding. And what we're seeing is, like us, all of the major adversaries are investing in AI technology. Where are they going to use that? They're going to use that um, to enhance the productivity of the things they're doing today. That's the near term. You're not going to see this radical innovation where AI is instantly its own threat. What it's going to make is the attackers who use um, AI faster, more agile, and more capable. It's going to make um, people doing malign influence operations against um, elections and other things um, able to speak in more digestible terms, more acceptable, more realistic terms. Um, so they'll probably be more effective with their messaging. And then in the criminal space, um, we see AI being used to generate new and unique phishing tools, new and unique campaigns um, to prosecute their activity. And we even see across the board AI being used um, to help software writers create their tools. Um, So um, what the intelligence is showing is the same thing that industry is experiencing is AI is an accelerant. And so what we're able to do with the foreign intelligence is zero in on the tools, the campaigns, the techniques that are underway to help bring that into security.
2: Okay. Do you envision, for example, that, you know, foreign powers might be targeting US AI companies and you know trying to steal AI models for example when you talk about targeting AI is that is that part of the threat model for you?
3: Yes. There's, to Rob's point, there's two separate pieces, right? There is our adversaries targeting AI companies and trying to steal that intellectual property and our innovative capabilities, and then there's our adversarial attacks on AI. So those actors actually attacking an AI network. So we break it into two different pillars, mm-hmm. um, but those are the two big streams under the AI Security Center that we'll be working against, and we'll use different operating models and way of sharing that insight with those companies. They can protect against it, but absolutely going to be targeting those AI companies. We want to make sure they have that information as well as how to protect against it.
2: Yeah. How do you think the big AI companies are doing in terms of protecting AI models? AI models are easy to steal, right? They're like, they're really light. Um, It's not, in terms of exfiltrating a a piece of data, exfiltrating an AI model would be pretty trivial, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, this is a, Fast-changing landscape, obviously AI has been around for a while, but really took off within the last year in terms of a mm-hmm. conversation topic. I think the good news is that a lot of the bigger AI companies are already stepping up and want to understand the threats. They want to be able to protect their models. They understand it's coming. So I think there's a lot of attention to it. Um, and you know, people always talk about the difference between AI security and AI safety. AI yeah. security is where we really need to spend a lot of time as well. And I think people are forming really good coalitions around that to better understand the threat and come together to actually protect everybody else's models as well, which is good.
2: What kinds of adversarial AI attacks are you, are you thinking about? What, what feels within the realm of the possible when it comes to NSA threat models for adversarial attacks?
0: Well, we know that AI will be used across the board in national security systems. So that is the intelligence community, the warfighting fighting community, um, the the networks that carry our secrets. And so what we've got to protect against in that space is the idea that you can get into one of those models and make it do things that it shouldn't, whether it's divulge information um, in that classified realm or not do the function that we intend it to do. So imagine, for instance, that there is AI control in some of the... Um, in some of the, the weapons platforms the department intends to use. We've gotta make sure that there's no way to spoof that model to make it think red turns, red turns blue and blue turns red, so those weapons then turn around and target our uh, capacity and capability. So there's a series of activities that when you talk about national security systems, we have to have the utmost trust in it. And that's what NSA um, has been doing for decades in national security systems Mm is ensuring the trust in those systems, whether it's to protect information or remain up in terms of nuclear command and control, or to have integrity um, in the transmission mode so that it can't be jammed and blocked. So we'll try to bring those same things to AI um, security is to ensure the trust in those systems when they're used operational.
2: One thing I hear a lot from folks in AI world is that AI development is far ahead of efforts to do AI safety and security or kind of trust, as you put it in in your answer. I, I'm curious what that looks like from where you guys sit. Does Do you think you have good enough tools to ensure safety and security or trust of AI models, uh, or do you think that you know, AI development is still far ahead of
0: that's the reason behind establishing the center. Right, we've been doing AI and machine learning for decades at NSA. Um, you know, there's been the explosion in the large language model portion of AI um, in the past couple of years, but this gives us a center of gravity to bring our expertise together in one place. Um, the the science of AI and the implementations are just on a rocket right now. Mm-hmm. right? The, the amount of innovation that's going on is tremendous. So no, we don't have everything we need to do, but, but this is our effort to bring that critical mass in both expertise and touch points to industry who has um, a tremendous amount of it, expertise and is also leading that innovation. So um, this brings us all together in one place so that we can optimize that safety and security.
2: One of the things I've been noticing in AI discourse in the last maybe year or so is starting to have integrate and adopt more concepts from cybersecurity. And it seems like concepts in cybersecurity are, are starting to be ported and applied over to AI development. I'm thinking in particular of um, the intense focus on red teaming. I'm curious if you think you you've both been doing cybersecurity for a long time. Do you think there are lessons from cybersecurity world that maybe folks in the AI space should be paying more attention to or thinking more about?
3: Yeah, um, we often say that, you know, eighty to ninety percent of AI security is cybersecurity. It is, it, you know, there are general basic hygiene type things um, and cybersecurity mindsets, like just basic principles like that we'd like to think about on how we set it up. So I think we we're just taking those lessons learned and that expertise, and we're trying to apply it. So I do think it's absolutely something that AI professionals need to pay, pay attention to.
0: Any lessons for you, Rob? <laughs> I think you've covered the idea that Adversaries are going to come at these models in new and innovative ways, so we also have to build our expertise to red team them, to evaluate them, and to stimulate them in unplanned and unique ways. Um, That's a value of NSA is um, we have that hacker mindset. Um, We do this to others, and so by pairing offense and defense, you get the, the expertise. I'd say it takes the thief to catch a thief, Um, So as we think about how we're going to pursue exploitation of foreign um, adversaries, um, we're bringing those new innovation techniques back into how do we defend against those same things happening to us. Mm.
2: There's a big debate playing out right now within AI research and industry communities about open versus closed source models. And the safety and security versus innovation and transparency benefits of the one versus the other. and I'm curious whether you have any thoughts on that debate about um, whether you see more value in in open source AI models or greater risks in in open source models, or whether you think the closed source approach that we see from some of the big corporate players are the way to go here.
0: Well, from my chair, um, we have to embrace both. Both have happened, will happen, are going to happen. Um, So we have to be prepared to work with the the big closed source teams and uh, bring that intelligence and understanding to their um, ecosystem where we don't get the ability to red team them and test them independently. And then we've got to be looking at the open source pieces um, where we can play in the ecosystem and directly suggest improvements and fixes back into their world.
3: No, completely agree. <laughs> we do have to we have to be on both sides, and for, it helps us to have both of those perspectives. So that makes
2: sense. when a, a a new open source model is released, like for example, um, the French AI company Mistral recently released a, a, um, a highly capable open source model. Uh, there was no announcement. They just tweeted a um, torrent magnet link, and um, there, it there, it <laughs> there it is. There it is. There it is. And when something like that happens, like does the NSA like AI uh, Security Center, do you download the model and kind of test it and see what it's about? What happens in yeah. that shop when a model like that
0: is released? Yeah, to, today we do not, right? Um, the focus here is on national security systems. So we are... Um, we're capacity limited, like everybody else, and the amount of innovation going on across the globe is uh, is massive. So our focus is on the tools and techniques that the Department of Defense, that uh, the the major. Um, The major labs are going to use, things the IC is going to adopt, things that the White House will want to put into production. So we're starting there. um, And then as we build more capacity and capability, obviously we'll have to look across the whole ecosystem. But the start is with the things that the U.S. government plans to adopt and integrate.
2: Thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate it. This has been great. Thank you for making the time.
1: I appreciate it. You can learn more about top cybersecurity trends at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back next week with brand new episodes. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.